Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Tuesday, December 12th, 2023. There's a couple of anniversaries. On December 12th, 627, a Byzantine army under Emperor Heraclius defeated a Sassanid Persian army at the Battle of Nineveh. Uh, the Byzantine victory broke the Persian resistance and allowed Heraclius and his army to raid deeper into the heart of the empire. Two months later, what was left of the Persian army and Persian nobility overthrew Emperor Khosrow II, who was already on shaky ground due to the failure of his siege of Constantinople in 626, and so brought an end to the Byzantine-Sasanian War of 602-628. It was the last war the Romans and Persians ever fought against one another, as both empires would soon be confronted by the Islamic Caliphate emerging from Arabia. On December 12th, 1098, the soldiers of the First Crusade, or the army of the First Crusade, I guess I should say, captured uh, the city of Marat an-Numan in Syria, modern-day Syria. Uh, Well, historic Syria, too, what am I saying? Uh, But Marat an-Numan is interesting, um, not so much uh, as a strategic uh, success or, uh, you know, what it meant for the crusade is, is uh, for what happened there. Uh, the crusaders were already quite uh, harrowed. They were running out of supplies. They were uh, had basically severed their ties with the Byzantines, who were supposed to be financing and supporting the campaign. Uh, they were well beyond uh, any kind of Uh, contact with the Byzantines at this point. Uh, So they were struggling, they were hurting, and the siege of Namarat and Numan was sort of the last straw. They finally took the city, uh, but they were out of everything. They were out of food, they were out of, you know, they couldn't ransack the countryside anymore. And so, uh, as it's said, as it's told in the historical sources, they turned to cannibalism. Uh, this, uh, I believe, uh, was confined to the flesh of dead Muslims, uh, but, uh, you know, that was bad enough, certainly, and the uh, Crusaders eventually, uh, the Crusade itself had to send a, a letter to Pope Urban II, uh, sort of begging forgiveness and uh, saying that it was, uh, they had only been forced by necessity into uh, this abomination, but it's a uh, interesting story of just how bleak things got along the way uh, to the First Crusade's capture of Jerusalem. And I do have a piece about it up at the website if you're interested. Uh, On to the news. Uh, The United Nations COP28 summit has extended well beyond its scheduled Tuesday close due to a continued disagreement over the language in its final statement. As we've been tracking, major fossil fuel producers have managed to expunge a call for phasing out fossil fuels in favor of something much vaguer. There's now word of a compromise draft that's somewhat less vague, which could be acceptable to attendees and would be adopted at a special Wednesday or I guess now at this point probably Thursday uh, session. This whole dust-up is somewhat silly given that these closing statements are at best expressions of intent rather than binding commitments. Uh, The only thing a failure to agree on a statement would really affect is the public image of the host country, the UAE, whose fitness to host a climate change summit was already uh, dubious anyway. On to the Middle East, and we start with Israel-Palestine, where the Wall Street Journal reported on Tuesday that the Israeli military, or IDF, has begun flooding tunnels beneath Gaza with seawater, a tactic that's intended to force militants above ground, along presumably with any surviving hostages taken during the October 7th attacks in southern Israel. 
The Wall Street Journal first reported on this plan earlier this month, and we did mention that here in the newsletter, when the IDF was weighing the value of destroying the tunnels uh, against the impact of literally salting the Gazan earth, ruining whatever remains of its fresh water supply, and potentially flushing the contents of its sewage system to the surface. It took about a week uh, for Israeli officials to decide that compromising what remains of Gaza's ability to sustain human life was worth it. Elsewhere, the U.N. General Assembly approved a resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza on Tuesday. The vote was a real tight one, with 153 in favor and 10 opposed, plus 23 abstentions. Joining Israel and the U.S. in opposing the ceasefire were Austria, Czechia, Guatemala, Liberia, Micronesia, Nauru, Papua New Guinea, and Paraguay. By comparison, the last UNGA ceasefire vote was 120 to 14 with 45 abstentions. We can probably assume that the abstentions, or at least most of them, were from governments that support a ceasefire but are still too afraid of alienating the U.S. to say so publicly. There's no substance to a UNGA resolution, so the outcome won't affect the war. It might affect the U.S. government's approach to the war, assuming anyone in the Biden administration is actually worried about this level of international isolation. On that note, prior to the vote, Joe Biden told an audience at a campaign event that Israel is, quote, starting to lose, end quote, international support because of the severity of its campaign in Gaza. I'm not sure what the issue is. Maybe it's the 18,000 plus dead or the 18 percent of Gaza's infrastructure. That's around 40,000 buildings that the U.N. now estimates have been damaged or destroyed. Or maybe it's the fact that Israeli forces attacked yet another Gazan hospital on Tuesday. But the lopsided vote uh, at the U.N., Uh, suggests that it's not just Israel that's losing support. Uh, The Israeli government agreed on Tuesday to open the Kerem Shalom checkpoint, which separates southern Gaza from Israel proper, as a new inspection point for humanitarian aid trucks. Uh, Egyptian officials say they sent some 80 trucks to that facility for inspection on Tuesday. Using Karim Shalom in this way could help alleviate an inspection bottleneck, but unless the Israeli government agrees to open the checkpoint up to allow trucks to pass directly into Gaza, it's unlikely to have a significant impact on the amount of aid actually getting into the territory. Uh, Right now, trucks are still being forced through the Rafah checkpoint, which isn't built for heavy truck traffic and can't handle enough of it to support an adequate relief operation. Uh, The IDF says it's recovered the bodies of two hostages from a tunnel under the Jabalia refugee camp. One, a soldier, was apparently killed during the October 7th attacks but was taken into Gaza anyway. It's unclear when or how the other died. Israeli media is reporting that officials are trying to reopen negotiations with Hamas on releasing additional hostages, but it's unclear whether Hamas is prepared to do that. Uh, Israeli authorities have now declared 19 of the remaining hostages dead in absentia. Israeli forces killed at least seven Palestinians in what was apparently a significant raid in the city of Jenin on Tuesday. Five of them were killed in an Israeli drone strike, which is still a somewhat rare occurrence in the West Bank, though they're becoming less rare. At least 282 Palestinians have now been killed in the West Bank since October 7th. In Yemen, Houthi rebels uh, fired a missile at the Norwegian-owned oil tanker Strinda in the Red Sea's Bab al-Mandeb Strait late Monday. Uh, A French frigate reportedly shot down a drone that was also threatening the vessel. The attack caused a fire aboard the Strinda, but the crew was able to extinguish it without incurring any casualties. The Houthis are claiming that the vessel was carrying oil to Israel, but tracking data apparently had it bound for Italy. 
In Jordan, border guards interdicted a troop, a group of drug smugglers who had crossed into Jordan from Syria near the city of Mafraq on Tuesday, killing several of them, with one Jordanian soldier also dying in the firefight. Jordanian authorities have been trying to crack down on the movement of drugs, particularly the stimulant Captagon, through their country on the way from Syria to the Persian Gulf. And in Egypt, polls closed in that country's presidential election on Tuesday after three days of voting. Please allow me to spare you any suspense. Incumbent Abdel Fattah Sisi won. The only real question, apart from turnout, is how big a victory Sisi has decided to give himself this time around. On to Asia and Pakistan. Jihadist fighters attacked a police station turned military base in northern Pakistan's Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province on Tuesday, killing at least 24 people. Tehrik-e-Jihad Pakistan, a relatively new group that's either splintered off of the main Pakistani Taliban or is a rebrand of some portion of it, claimed responsibility for the attack. Elsewhere, the Islamabad High Court overturned former Pakistani Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif's 2018 corruption conviction. This, I believe, clears Sharif's criminal record and helps clear the way to his uh, candidacy in next year's parliamentary election. If he does run, he will presumably be the Pakistan Muslim League Party's prime ministerial candidate. In Myanmar, uh, let's just say Afghanistan is no longer the world's opium capital and has officially... Uh, according to the UN, passed that dubious title on to Myanmar. Uh, in part, this is due to the Taliban-led Afghan government's crackdown on drug production. But Myanmar's descent into widespread anarchy since the February 2021 military coup also goes some way toward explaining the shift. Some 47,100 hectares of land in Myanmar is now being used to grow opium, uh, again, according to the UN, which is still less than was being used a decade ago, but represents a hefty increase over the past year or so. A weak economy presumably has something to do with the increased popularity of opium production. In Africa, in Guinea-Bissau, President Omaro Sissoko Mbalo named uh, Geraldo Martins as his new prime minister on Tuesday. And if that name sounds familiar, it might be because Martins was already serving as prime minister before Mbalo sacked his entire cabinet as he was dissolving parliament last week. He accused cabinet members of being too passive about the shootout in Bissau a couple of weeks ago that he has characterized as an attempted coup. Uh, in Ethiopia, authorities have arrested the federal government's now former state minister for peace, Taye Dendia, uh, Dendea, excuse me, on allegations that he's been working with Oromo rebels to overthrow Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's government. Coincidentally, or maybe not, uh, Taye has criticized the government and Abiy personally uh, for the failure of its most recent round of peace talks with the rebel Oromo Liberation Army. It sure seems like that criticism is the reason he's now being charged for colluding with the OLA. Uh, Abi is not, shall we say, known for graciously accepting criticism. In Uganda, uh, there's a piece at The Nation by Natasha Hakimi Zapata that questions whether the Uganda government has truly earned its reputation as a progressive international refuge. Uh, and I'll read you just the introduction to that piece. Uh, quote, I'm barely surviving in Uganda, but I am still alive, end quote, says a refugee from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, whom I'll call Joseph, as goats and chickens scuttle through Kampala's informal settlements. Over several weeks, refugees from the DRC, Somalia, South Sudan, Burundi, Rwanda, Eritrea, and Afghanistan, among other countries, each told the, the nation their stories of displacement to Uganda, a co-convener of the United Nations' upcoming 2023 Global Refugee Forum. Most ended on a similar note. 
We are struggling, even starving, but we are safe. At the Geneva Forum beginning December 15th, this East African country and temporary home to 2.4 million refugees will be showcasing what is known as the Uganda Model for Refugee Hosting based on its 2006 Refugee Act, hailed time and again by the United Nations and Western media as the most progressive in the world. And yet, while humanitarian and refugee groups recognize that Uganda's approach is indeed progressive, the refugees' increasingly dire circumstances amid aid cuts and failed strategies should be raising urgent questions about why the West is so invested in holding up Uganda as a model to the rest of the world. So, too, should President Yairi Museveni's growing authoritarianism. Could it be, as some critics have suggested, that the West is willing to overlook both poor conditions and settlements and Museveni's dangerous power grabs in order to prevent refugees from reaching our own shores? Um, check that piece out. The answer might surprise you, or not. Um, on to Europe. In Russia, the Biden administration added more than 250 people and entities to its Russian sanctions list on Tuesday. Most of the newly blacklisted entries appear to be accused of funneling weapons and other proscribed military products to Russia. But the administration also targeted Russia's banking, energy and mining sectors. Meanwhile, a classified U.S. intelligence assessment circulating in Congress estimates that the Russian military has lost, and I'm quoting here, 87% of the total number of active duty ground troops it had prior to launching its invasion of Ukraine and two-thirds of its pre-invasion tanks, end quote. And, and here's another quote, over a quarter of its pre-invasion stockpiles of ground forces equipment, end quote. This is all according to CNN. That is an astonishing level of battlefield losses. So astonishing, in fact, that it's very hard to believe these figures could be accurate without the Russian military completely collapsing. This is apparently, though, the story that the U.S. government is telling. Uh, in Ukraine, meanwhile, President Volodymyr Zelensky spent his Tuesday in Washington pleading with congressional Republicans to authorize funding for new military aid. Going by the immediate reaction, it doesn't appear that he made much headway. The main hang-up blocking adoption of Joe Biden's supplemental war funding bill, which includes over $60 billion for Ukraine, still appears to be a disagreement over border security funding. There's some possibility that a compromise could emerge before Congress takes its year-end recess, but it seems at this point like a long shot. And in the Americas, finally, uh, in the U.S., with the, the uh, COP28, as we mentioned at the beginning of this newsletter, perhaps on the verge of achieving not very much, as it turns out, uh, Sarang Shador argues in The Nation that U.S. primacy and climate change are inextricably linked. And I'll read you a bit of his piece. Yet another cop comes along, with an, uh, comes along with another round of bad news on our climate failure. Nobody who seriously follows climate change believes anymore that the world will stay within the 1.5 degrees Celsius safe limit of warming. Breaching the even more dangerous 2 degrees Celsius threshold is also getting likelier with every passing year of insufficient action. Current global warming projections are in the 2.5 degrees Celsius to 2.9 degrees Celsius range, but we don't have to run complex climate models to know that wildfires, hurricanes, heat waves, and other signs of an angry planet are already pummeling us and they will get worse. The planet is burning and U.S. habits of primacy are a key reason why. American primacy is generally defined as its global military dominance, with its enormous firepower, hundreds of overseas military bases, and a sprawling network of allies. The United States also dominates global finance. Matters are more complicated when it comes to trade and investment, however, as well as the institutional arena, where newer groupings such as the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, are revitalizing themselves. This has triggered a debate as to whether we are already in a multipolar world. But Washington's habits of primacy, as separate from the primacy's material extent, 
content are more germane to the climate debate. These habits involve a sense of American exceptionalism, an a la carte approach to international law and norms, and an overly moralist gaze toward the rest of the world. Of course, Washington's lens of primacy is not the only reason for our inability to resolve the climate crisis. A systemic, wicked problem such as climate change cannot have mul- but have multiple causes and implicated actors. The list of climate violators is long, and they span the globe. But the ingrained habits of primacy are a key contributor to our climate failure through three principal axes, the imbalanced U.S.-China dynamic, a dismissive attitude towards the global South, and a schizophrenic framing of the climate challenge. Uh, And again, I would uh, encourage you to click through and read the rest of that piece. Uh, On that note, uh, thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter, and especially those of you who are Foreign Exchange's subscribers and make this newsletter possible. Until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.